Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Political commentator and investigative journalist. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're in the second hour of this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening and watching, hopefully, as well to TNT Today's News Talk. And what a tremendous segment uh, before the break in the first hour with veteran war correspondent, journalist, economist, Leila Haitoum, who's uh, on the ground in the Middle East and giving us uh, up-to-date reports. She's also familiar with the areas where the fighting is taking place and has been down in that region as well. So we really appreciate her uh, her work, for first and foremost, uh, doing what she does. And there's so many other great journalists in the Middle East, and more journalists have been sadly uh, killed uh, in the last six and a half weeks uh, than in any other previous war. More journalists have died in the shortest period of time than any other war. So this is a new record, not a record to be proud of, um, but these have all been killed by Israeli forces. So in some cases, uh, there is evidence that they were targeted in in terms of the reporters and the family, Al Jazeera journalists in Gaza, but also in South Lebanon, as well, two Al Mayadeen reporters uh, died, were killed uh, just a few days ago. This is an excellent media outlet, by the way. Al Mayadeen's regarded as uh, having some of the best journalists uh, in the business, very much like Al Jazeera. And Al Jazeera themselves have lost quite a few um, as well, and as stringers as well, people that work for mainstream media, um, either for the major news agencies, but they're local. So you have a lot of Palestinian journalists that are stringers for Associated Press, for Reuters, uh, for numerous different media outlets and agencies, and many of them have been killed uh, so far. And so this is very sad. I think the numbers we're talking about right now is already between 70 and 80 journalists and photojournalists have uh, been killed. Uh, by airstrikes, uh, by bombing, and by the fighting. So very unfortunate indeed. So we really value the people that are giving us uh, up-to-date news on this. People like Leila Hatoum, people like Marwa Osman, uh, people like uh, so many others there. So we'll we'll do our best. We'll endeavor to get more people uh, onto the program. Um, I, I will also sadly report that some of the people that we have been talking to are no longer in communication uh, for various reasons. They could have been detained. Uh, they could have been killed. We don't know. So this is also an issue. Um, so uh, that's just the way things are right now on the ground there. And uh, I can't say it's uh, a good situation at all. So on the Western media front, well, you can imagine how's the BBC treating this. So you're starting to see little breaks uh, in the information firewall, either on CNN, you'll see a segment or two that seem to be framing things in a more realistic perspective, really kind of calling out Israel for the war crimes. And, you you know, the, what is widely regarded, according to any UN definition, human rights organizations have all opined, including the former head of the UN High Commission on Human Rights, uh, who resigned over this very issue, which is that this is genocide. Uh, so this is intentionally and indiscriminately using military, heavy-duty military to uh, target civilians. 
And so that is absolutely, uh, by anyone's definition, genocide. So how's the BBC treating all this? Well, the BBC have let out a couple of reports. They've had a few presenters push back against the idea of spokespeople. You've seen some of these clips. Some of them are quite impressive that they did. I'm sure they got an earful from BICOM uh, or some of the the Israeli embassy uh, in London as well. Certainly they're watching the news like a hawk in the UK and pushing back against anything that's criticizing what they're doing on the ground. Uh, So the BBC reporters um, are now being called out by Al Jazeera. This is an interesting dynamic because a lot of people aren't aware that Al Jazeera is, at least initially, was uh, largely staffed, at least the English language operation, actually, which used to be based in London. I'm not sure if it still is, but the... uh, Al Jazeera English, definitely, and also Arabic, uh, too, are staffed with a lot of ex-BBC journalists, reporters, producers, anchors, you name it, okay? So there's a lot of BBC pedigree in Al Jazeera over the years, okay? Now, I don't know what that, how that sits right now, but that was the case uh, during the early and mid-2000s. Certainly, I had um, interactions. I appeared on some Al Jazeera programs and documentaries. Uh, during that time. So I interfaced with some of these people and almost all of them were either ex-BBC, ex-ITV, et cetera. So employees have reportedly accused Al Jazeera employees are taking pot shots at the BBC and they're, they're accusing them of downplaying the suffering of Palestinian civilians. This is interesting. So you have two major media outlets uh, that are more or less state-owned, state-directed. Uh, the government Qatar, the Royal Family of Qatar, they're the underwriters of Al Jazeera. And the BBC is underwritten by the state. Uh, and the state goes around extorting people for TV license money. Even if they don't watch the BBC, you still have to pay. And they threaten you with imprisonment and all the rest of it. It's a really good deal if you're British, of course, because the BBC is such a wonderful journalistic media outlet. So it's interesting Al Jazeera is calling them out. So BBC journalists are now also accusing the uh, their own company, and this is the twist, okay? BBC journalists are accusing their own company of bias coverage. So this, <laughs> this is when you know things are bad. So normally this is verboten. Like if you want to work in the industry, and let's, let's face it, a, a job with the BBC is a job for life. That's like your career's made. All you have to do is get either a tech job in there, any kind of line producer. As long as you're in the family, you're set, either with a regional outlet, which BBC has around uh, around the country, international uh, bureau as well, which of, of which there are many, but Broadcasting House in White City, of course, Manchester, and, and uh, I think Cardiff is also a big operation in Wales. So you, you'll be blackballed. Uh, if you if you criticize your employer, but this is exactly what's happening. That that's when you know things are really bad on the ground, and you know you're looking at major injustice there. When journalists at the BBC are willing to put their careers on the line, okay, They're re- willing to put it all on the line, that job for life, like let's say you can retire, you can like, die in your job. It's like getting a columnist job at the Telegraph, okay, job for life. So they're willing to put that on the line. They're accusing the BBC of biased coverage in Gaza, okay? And Israeli President Isaac Herzog had (laughs) previously called, this is interesting, Israeli President Isaac Herzog previously called the coverage atrocious in a verbal attack from the other side. So 
uh, Israelis aren't happy, maybe because they're not. It's not uh, a con- the condemnations aren't hard enough against the Palestinians. Who knows? But uh, there's a, a two thousand three hundred word letter, uh, which was cited in Al Jazeera reporting here. Eight eight UK based journalists working for the BBC have accused their employer of failing to accurately report the story due to lack of critical engagement with Israel's claims about the conflict. In other words, they're not questioning anything that's coming off the conveyor belt at the uh, Department of Information Dispersal, to uh, borrow a term there from, I think, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, or was that Tom Hanks in Joe versus the Volcano? I'm not sure. But the, the Department of Information Dispersal in Israel, Department of Propaganda, so their lack of critical engagement with Israel's claims. So they believe everything and just spit it out and report it, regurgitate it. So uh, these employees of the Beeb are complaining that terms like, quote, massacre and atrocity can only be used to describe uh, events carried out by Palestinian militant groups like Hamas. But you can't use the term massacre or atrocity and attribute it to anything that Israel does. So this is this is in their letter here. This is a kind of a pretty salient point, actually. And so the BBC instead will only paint Hamas as the only instigator and perpetrator of violence in the region, and they're pushing back against this. So they're saying that there's also this insinuation that there was a ceasefire uh, up until like a permanent ceasefire in Gaza up until October 7th and Hamas broke the ceasefire. Therefore, they deserved what was coming to them in terms of the carpet bombing that has ensued over the last six weeks. That is nothing could be further from the truth. There, there was no ceasefire of the last 17 years. What there has been is an economic siege and a blockade of Gaza by the Israeli military and the Israeli state. Okay, and they have done major operations and bombed Gaza many, many times over the last 17 years. So that that's that the actual fact. There was never a ceasefire. If there was, it was clearly broken by Israel, according to a number of people, journalists, academics. This is all very well documented. All these different supposed ceasefire agreements, almost to a letter, every single one has been broken by Israel. So that's what the historical record says. So Israeli and Palestinian victims are not treated equally by the BBC, the letter claims, stressing that humanizing coverage of Palestinian civilians uh, has been lacking. This is interesting. This kind of dovetails with the admission from the White House just a couple of days ago, which to me is stunning, that the White House said their worry about a ceasefire is that Western journalists would be able to get into the Gaza Strip and that their reporting might basically undermine or hurt uh, sympathy for the Israeli cause. So what journalists would expose in terms of documenting eyewitness testimonies, fact-finding in Gaza, would threaten Washington's uh, effort to uh, you know, protect Israel from international criticism. So they don't want to hurt any, public, any existing public sympathy for Israel. They, they feel that free press would undermine that. That was admitted by the White House this week. So you you tie that together with what we're seeing from these BBC employees, and it paints a very disturbing picture. And the picture is obvious, and that um, censorship by omission. I think that's the best way to describe it. 
censorship by omission and reframing of the conflict uh, in favor of one side and to demonize the other. And isn't that what's happened from the beginning? Seriously, I mean, the fact that we have to explain this at this point is something incredible in itself. Let's take a break with the network right now. We'll be back in just a few moments uh, to continue our news breakdown. Uh, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT. Today's news talk. We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Rick Munn. I'm looking also at South Africa in terms of uh, ESCOM, which is a company that we have talked about a lot here. That's the South African electricity provider. ESCOM has posted a massive 24 billion rand loss for 2022-2023 financial year, exacerbated by a huge escalation in load shedding, which is basically blackouts, for want of a better expression, mounting municipal debt and skyrocketing losses due to criminal activity. That's both within the company, I would say, and outside of the company. The group presented its first full-year financials for the 12 months ending 31st of March on Tuesday. It said the year was characterized by a significant deterioration of performance, including a steep decline in energy availability of 56%, down from 62%. So half the country are having difficulty getting any electricity at all. And most places are undergoing what's called uh, load shedding, which means for up to 10 hours per day, you could be disconnected from the electricity supply in South Africa. Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. All right. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Henning, your host. We're in the second hour. Can't believe it. We're already in the second hour of this live broadcast. We've had some great information coming through the pipeline. I think we hopefully we have a good picture of what's going on um, in the Middle East. We talked about the media information war there, the BBC getting slated by their own employees. The fact that this has been publicized as well, it's very embarrassing uh, for the BBC. Uh, they probably deserve it. Of course, it's long overdue. They've been doing this for such a long time. But isn't it interesting how this story, how this issue of what's happening, how it's just 
it's exposed so much in terms of corruption uh, in, in politics, but also in media. And it's, it's really just kind of opened up so many things that allowed people to sort of <laughs> people that would normally sort of put their head down and be quiet about some of these things. Um, you can really see who's who in terms of you know, the, 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 the real dissidents, um, whether they're the employees of the BBC, whether they're members of the Labour Party in the UK, uh, whether they're Democrats or Republicans in the United States, or whether there are people in Europe, elected representatives or journalists and so forth, you can really see who's really stepped up to the plate on this issue. And the the level of censorship and skewed reporting is really on another level. But we'll, we'll repeat what we've said so many times, and that's that you know, governments and mainstream media seem to be all together in lockstep from the beginning on their trying to hold the narrative on this. But independent media and the the people in general, the global population seems to be on another page in, in general. The numbers are undeniable in terms of record-breaking protests. I mean, we didn't even see these sort of numbers protesting the Iraq war, uh, if you want to sort of line it up on the aggregate. And we just didn't. And not only that, sustained and growing. So that tells you as, as a kind of litmus test of where the public is on this, the international public. And so the mainstream media, the government, Western governments, G7 governments, NATO governments, they've all been kind of in their little sort of camp on this. And they have the, they have the reach, they have the money, they have the power, but they don't have the people. And the people seem to be sympathetic with the Palestinian uh, freedom and liberation cause here and opposing what Israel is doing to these people. And that's very telling. It's very telling. So the BBC is very important, you know, in terms of global media outlets, uh, in terms of coverage, BBC is second to none internationally and how that's, you know, disseminates out through their various international uh, news bureaus, either be it in Asia, uh, be it in Africa, South America, North America, the Middle East, Australia, Canada, etc. The BBC is worldwide in terms of their coverage. So to see dissent amongst their ranks, and I'll bet you this isn't the only dissent, especially imagine the people working in the Middle Eastern Bureau, for instance, or you know BBC Persia, they might even have a problem with it. Um, so that's interesting. And CNN is also in that category. I'll put a, I'll put them in that category, sort of broad global coverage very important so you know where are these and and who's their audience i mean i don't sit there and watch all the bbc coverage i watch highlights of it stuff tends to get you know flagged and pushed to go viral on twitter if it's particularly controversial or it's like really egregious in terms of bad propaganda or it's really good in terms of someone's gone on there and basically flipped the script and spoken truth on the bbc those those two types of clips are the ones that would generally go viral but i don't sit there watching their news broadcasts because a you know it's like taking quaaludes i mean you literally fall asleep most of the time but the proposition the propaganda is so anodyne and banal but so cutting at the same time they are masters at soft power i mean the british wrote the book on soft power nobody does it like the british they invented it practically actually they did invent soft power the united states really took the baton from britain on that so that when we're looking at these outlets, um, they influence the uh, older voting generation. They influence the political class. They influence probably the financial class as well to a large degree. 
Uh, they also influence people that work for governments and institutions. And so being and of a certain baby boomer age, you could say, and a probably Gen X as well, to to some degree. But once you get down to the lower half of Gen X, that's when things start to get dicey for the mainstream media, because that's when you see the fragmentation of audiences that are splitting off into, you know, independent media and sort of uh, what I call major minors. Uh, these are sort of outlets like maybe The Hill or uh, the Daily Wire to some degree, or the Daily Wire has been pretty terrible on this uh, in taking their sort of pro-Israeli stance, aside from Candace Owens, of course, who's done some, I think, some balanced commentary on this. Her work is commendable, actually. But so the major minors, independent media, social media, one-man bans on social media, these are the people that are really pushing the envelope in terms of the information war. I like to think that, you know, we're we're part of that, mosaic uh here at tnt we're part of that independent media mosaic and we're pushing the envelope as as best we can uh and trying to talk to the best possible sources and talk to the best uh quality people uh to get the information relay that to you our audience and i hope you appreciate it certainly uh we know our audience appreciates it judging by the engagement in the TNT chat room throughout the week. Uh, we have hit over the 120 mark on our chat room on a number of occasions. We're going to get it up to 150, hopefully. But uh, thanks, you guys, down in the TNT chat community down there where it's all happening. That's where you want to be. Just go to the URL, tntradio.live. You'll see the red bubble lurking in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen on your browser whether you're using brave or google chrome you'll see the bubble there that's where the chat bar is then you can log in just go to the three dots up at the top log in it'll keep you logged in as well over multiple sessions over the weeks as you dip in and out of the programming here on this network and we really appreciate you guys you guys are amazing keeping it alive keeping it real in the tnt chat room that's where you want to be there be nowhere actually during these live broadcasts there's nowhere else to be but in that chat box look we're going to break in a couple of minutes and uh connect with our legal correspondent uh the always entertaining and always uh off the wall sometimes i mean some of the cases that he's covering unbelievable but i'm hoping matthew lee will give us also a little bit of insight on how this situation in the middle east is shaping up in the big apple how it's affecting the movers and shakers there and if any of this is these these sort of politics are seeping in to the UN, whether that's making a difference or not, we'll wait and see. So we'll connect with him in just a few minutes. But uh, yeah, really appreciate all of you guys for joining us uh, over these difficult weeks. It's not been easy covering this, and I'm probably not alone in saying that uh, there's a danger of becoming desensitized to some of the horrific scenes that we've seen on social media. Certainly, I've seen things that I never wanted to see in just in the last 24 hours. There are images that are, uh, you know, burned into my brain that I wish I never saw. Um, but I, I can't look away. And the reason I can't look away is because when I see uh, some of the things that Leila Hatoum was describing in the first hour, when I see these things, I think, yeah, it's hard to look at it uh, in a digital environment you know, mostly on our phones, sometimes on our laptops. It's difficult to look at it. But imagine how difficult it is to be the one filming it or the, to be the family member that's digging their child uh, out from the dust, uh, hoping to get them out from under some concrete slab. Luckily, alive, 
if they're lucky, but mostly not. Uh, imagine how difficult it is for them. And these scenes at the hospitals, uh, pretty incredible, pretty unbelievable, pretty horrific on a level that, you know, I, most of us could never even comprehend. And uh, so it's hard for them, uh, those people actually facing that, physically facing that. So for us to see it virtually, it's really, it's reality once or twice removed. So, you know, we just have to kind of hold our emotions. Uh, I, I think it's important to know what's going on in the world to see these things because the bottom line is the whole point, the reason these people are putting these images out of family members, of their children, of uh, people, their neighbors, the reason they're putting this this material out is they want the world to see it so the world can make it stop. And, and not only that, so the world can make it not happen again, or at least not happen again for a while. That's why people do it. And we, we've, we've heard this, some testimonies of people saying, we want, we want the world to see, we need the world to see. A father will sit there holding his dead daughter, knowing that it's being filmed because somehow in his mind, he does, he thinks that if people see this and see his anguish, that maybe just maybe it might cause many people in the United States to raise their voice to their elected representatives to say no more or to their uh, constituents in the UK or in Holland or in Germany or somewhere in Europe, in Italy or someone, the G7 in Canada, and so, some, somewhere, somewhere that this, this will have some effect and will, you know, initiate some change. That's, that's why they're doing it is that they're not doing it. It's just not exhibitionism or anything like that. They, they literally do not want to see this happen to the next one and the next one. That's why they do it. So they're, they're, they're not doing it to uh, traumatize us. No, they're doing it because they just have nothing else. What else can they do? Show the world what happened. What else can you do? That's what the journalists are doing. Many of the journalists have lost their lives. They just want to show the world what's happening. That's it. No other reason. Because they because if they don't, nobody will see it. Nobody will see it. And, and definitely in this case, nobody will see it. And there's so much that the world hasn't seen because there's no journalists to cover it. There's so many scenes that have not been seen because there's no one left to film it. And that's the point. That's the point. That's the real point. Let's take a break uh, and try to connect Matthew Lee from Inner City Press on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening and watching TNT, today's news talk. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. A very interesting study has come out. The top 1% of wage earners in the world produce 99% of the emissions of CO2. Now, if CO2 were bad, that'd be a big problem. But it's not bad. But it's very interesting the way they came up with that. The number one producer of CO2 with 1.3 billion people is China. So the Chinese have to be consuming more CO2 than, let's say, the United States. And they do five to ten times more. But that's interesting. Is this study saying that the average wage in China is higher than the average wage in the United States? 
I seriously doubt that. And the answer is not with CO2. It has to do with the system, the system of capitalism and freedom, which of course is being taken apart in the United States and other areas in the West, versus the Chinese system. Now we continue to see China thumbing its nose at the rest of the world as they have produced 137 coal plants in the last two years and continue to build them like mad. And yet they say, oh, well, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. By 2050? I thought the world's ending within 10 years. What good is carbon neutral by 2050? They're not going to be carbon neutral anytime in anyone's lifetime and likely in anyone's lifetime that has not been born yet. This is TNT, Climate and Weather Watchdog, Meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Even the thought of dementia can feel scary. It's why we put off getting help, even though we've noticed changes in our thinking or memory. But an early diagnosis can change everything, giving you medical help and a support system around you to help you live better. Start with Dementia Australia's online checklist. Because the sooner you know, the more you can do. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back to this live broadcast. We're in the final segment of the final hour here at TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us. And uh, we're going to go to our legal correspondent in the Big Apple in New York City, Matthew Russell Lee from Inner City Press, who's been attracting a lot of attention in recent weeks and months with his reporting of some of these blockbuster cases. And we've got him on the line right now. Matthew, how are you? Doing well, doing well, Patrick. Glad there's a, there is it's true. There's a lot going. Even though there's been the the Thanksgiving lull, can complete with people glued to the sidewalk in front of the parade here uh, on Gaza. But I'm going to give you some legal, the legal uh, uh, pungent legal news, beginning with Trump, if you don't mind. Um, well, you may have firstly, heard that he's being. Oh, sorry, please. Sorry to interrupt you. Hit me. Firstly, did the Thanksgiving Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, did it go off without a hitch? Because there were a lot of terror terror threats oh, or ter- alerts. The only hitch things. was the only hitch was a was a relatively small um, uh, Gaza protest where people glued themselves to the sidewalk. You may have seen it. Now I, I've seen somebody from the Israeli mission to the UN here. They, they did show there was quite a lot of booing from the crowd, but there was some gluing to the sidewalk. But it went off without a hitch. They they worked around it. The balloons were big. I, I'm not really that into the parade, but there was no there was no quote terrorist attack on it. Just as there was no uh, at at the bridge in Niagara, it, it, well well uh, um, overplayed. No, you say that, but Fox News was ready to launch nuclear missiles at Iran. They're going crazy. They were convinced it was a terror attack for hours, and then all of a sudden, it was a fireball. It was it was that car was moving pretty fast. I have to say, those guys were pretty nuts. But we'll never know. We'll never really know their motives, Patrick. So that's. But I think that it's it's been debunked as uh, having anything to do with the tinderbox that is the Middle East. Although I'm I'm going to stay away from that story. I know you've got other correspondents. What you don't have, what you do not have is the nitty-gritty of Eric Adams. When last we spoke, we were talking about Eric Adams, now pretty much under investigation. It's pretty clear. He's under investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigations. He may end up being indicted here in the Southern District of New York Courthouse. And it has to do with taking illegal campaign contributions from a foreign government, in this case, Turkey, packaged through various Turkish officials, relatives of Erdogan, 
Um, and, and it all came down, ironically, to cutting red tape for Turkey's new U.S. mission, U.N. mission right across the United Nations. Erdogan was coming. The General Assembly was convening. He wanted to spike the football in his new, very shiny, kind of garish tower across from the United Nations. But they didn't have the permits that they needed. They didn't have the sprinkler permit. There's a lot. When you build a skyscraper in New York, you can't just move in. So they paid Eric Adams. At that time, he was the Democratic candidate to become mayor. So he had, although he was still Brooklyn Borough President, he was the sort of heir apparent as 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 the uh, as the mayor of the city of New York and a few contributions into Eric Adams fund. And the next thing you know, Erdogan was dancing on First Avenue across from the U.N. with the permit having been given. Now, this is, of course, technically illegal to take a quid pro quo bribe, particularly from a foreign government, to cut through what are well-meaning fire and safety regulations in New York. And so the investigation begins. There have been search warrants served on fundraisers. There have been the seizure, pretty extreme, the seizure from Eric Adams personally, directly in a black SUV. The FBI showed up, asked his security to step to the side, got in the car with him. And when the car, when they left the car, they had several iPhones and an iPad and they're going through them. And and when, as one, one of my colleagues here said, I don't want to say CP is an initial, but you just never know what you find on somebody's phone. So it's it's always dangerous when you go down this road. Eric Adams, I mean, I'm not, I have no personal, I have no knowledge that he would be involved in that, except to say, and now we're, we're, we're going to turn the screw one more time. There's a law here in the state of New York that some say was passed specifically to go after Trump. It's the I, I don't I don't know if that's the case. It's called the Adult Survivors Act, and it waived the statute of limitations for suits about sexual abuse. This allowed E. Jean Carroll to sue Donald Trump for, for a, a 1996 Bergdorf Goodman changing room incident. But it also has allowed any number of other suits. And there's been a slew of suits. If you were to go online, you'd find Axel Rose, Puff Daddy, otherwise known as Diddy. Um, Mario Cuomo has been the subject of one such suit, although that's a more recent, like 2017 allegation. But it weighs the statute of limitations. And Eric Adams has found himself this Thanksgiving as he as he spoke proudly of NYPD's performance on the Macy's Day Parade getting right around those glued down protesters. He's been sued for a 1993 alleged sexual assault incident by a fellow member of New York City's, uh, uh, the New York City uh, workforce. And so it's it's all, it's, so I guess that would be the connection to what's on the phone. Although 1993, I'm not even sure he had these phones or there even were phones back then. Back to you, Patrick. <laughs> so so with the honeypot uh is, is that confirmed there was a, a a honeypot sent his way that's the implication isn't it no i i'm gonna i, I need to let, let me i'm sorry if i created that impression it's that these lawsuits are being sued and i'm actually steering today it being quiet here I, i'm able i could t- read you anything off pacer there's also been a lawsuit filed on thanksgiving itself in fact it was the only lawsuit filed in the southern district of new york on thanksgiving and I'm the first reporting it. You're getting fresh information, fresh, fresh meat here. And the meat is that on Thanksgiving Day, the ostensible deadline, I think it's actually today because that was a holiday of the Adult Survivors Act. Peter Nygaard. I don't know if this resonates with you. Mm. I Before he was sued here, I didn't know much. He's a Canadian oh, wow. slash Finnish fashion mogul. He's currently sitting very much. I think he still has a COVID mask on. I haven't seen him on Zoom in, in, in the longest. He's buddies he with Epstein. From, is he buddies with Epstein? Yes. 
he's he's very similar. He was in the Bahamas, which is the island of Sam Bankman Freed. If we want to if we want to keep all these stories coming to you in the Bahamas, he had Nygaard K and he had something called pamper parties, which when I first heard of it, I thought it meant like people putting pampers on because the, the drugs were so good. No, it's he pampered Caribbean young women promising them that they could become models for his Nygaard line of fashion and in fact brutally raping them that's the i mean this guy is not this is not just underage but semi but non-violent this is a violent individual fully flexed up if you've seen his ad looming over times square which i'm looking at now because the lawsuit was filed and it has photographs of the the old Nygaard ads i don't know anything about Nygaard except that he looks kind of like the the guy who used to do the I can't believe it's not butter ads with the like sweeping long hair and very flexed up. And he committed some truly violent crimes. He's sitting in jail in Canada right now. But if any money remains, I, I created actually for myself a Google News alert for Nygaard when he was getting I was covering the case and there were very few others doing it. There's a U.N. angle too. rest assured Nygaard was hanging around the U.N. and like. It's incredible. The the UN fell over backwards because they co-sponsored a party with Nygaard. I don't know if they heard the screams or not. They they don't seem that concerned about it. But Nygaard, uh, I, I, it still seems to exist. I don't know if it's an aftermarket in Nygaard goods, but Nygaard was a big fashionista. And I, it was some relatively, it was in Western Canada. He was like the toast of the town. And he apparently owned the town and all the people in it. And as I've learned from the lawsuit filed yesterday, Thanksgiving, he had a, a flagship store in, over Times Square. So it's a, there's a Macy's connection here. In fact, there's a picture of him saying, I salute the annual Macy's Day Parade 19, 2006. This is the future home of the Nygaard Empire, a flagship six-story building in Times Square in which he illegally converted the top floor to an apartment with a jacuzzi, a disco room, and apparently soundproofed rooms where he committed his crimes. So now 13 Jane Doe's have sued Nygaard. I don't think Nygaard's ever going to get out of jail. I think he's about 84 now. And he was just recently, this month, convicted in Toronto of violent sexual assault. He's wanted in the in, in SDNY. There's a case against him, a criminal case. I don't know if Canada is going to extradite somebody who's serving a prison term in Canada to be put on trial in the U.S. to possibly serve a term over here. Plus, he's 84. And last I heard, he didn't even want to leave his cells for these cases. It's kind of he was on top of the world. He was he was abusing and using people. He had pretty much bought off very similar to SBF. Actually, he had bought off politicians in the Bahamas to, like, leave him alone or send them victims. But it's all come crashing down. I guess you can say from his point of view. He's a he's a vicious sadist. I'm willing to. He seems to be as well as being perhaps having fine fashion sense. A vicious sadist. He did what he wanted for 30 years, and he's having a, a very a very troubling. You know, five years from now, he's been pretty much in jail wearing a. His victims, I'm sure, don't think it's enough. But it's this is how it's going to end. I believe it's going to end in a prison cell in Canada, which, by all accounts, maybe 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 more plush than than the cells over here. <laughs> because this, all of these things sound way too hype, Patrick, and I'm I'm concerned about talking only about Puff Daddy and Eric Adams and other pop culture figures. Let me tell you about Cholo Abdi Abdullah. Cholo, is he uh, back is in a, the news? He's no. This is not. Oh, this is not Poyo. This is Cholo. Oh no, it's Cholo Poyo. Is Somali. Oh, Poyo. This is Cholo. Poyo. I can get into that. This is Cholo. Cholo, which Cholo. is it does sound like it does sound like he's kind of like a Mexican, like like he's swinging with Sinaloa. No, no, he was swinging with Al Shabab, Cholo Abdi Abdullah, and he's I saw him in court physically. He's very articulate. 
He's been in jail in the United States for about three years, kind of incommunicado, as I'll get to in a moment. He's facing trial. It was supposed to be January. Now it's going to be maybe April or May um, for a plot to fly commercial jetliners into the United States, a kind of a 9-11 copycat. He was a 9-11 copycat. He seems to have known Richard Reeves, the, the, the shoe bomber, underwear bomber. He's a real he's a, he's he's a, he's a top 10 terrorist. But here's what it's come to. And this is the point I want to get to all. I was thrown out of a courtroom so I couldn't hear it. It was sealed. I could get into my own my own problems with this. But I want to say I'm glad that I waited outside the courtroom for nearly two hours before being readmitted and hearing that his complaint. He's going to go to trial. And here's it. Here's the incredible thing. He's going to represent himself. Number one, he's not crazy. He's this guy is, is stone cold saint. He just knows he's going to be convicted. He doesn't want a lawyer. The judge said you have to have a lawyer, if, if only a standby counsel. And it appeared for a moment that the standby counsel would be able to file motions on his on his behalf without his consent. This was he was disabused of that. If he says no, the motion won't be filed. But if they try to contact him in jail and he refuses to speak to the lawyer, the lawyer is free to do anything they want because they'll say my 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 client is incommunicado. I have to act for him. Here's what Cholo Abdi Abdullah wants. He wants to go passive at trial. He said it. I'm going to go passive. I'm not going to present any defense. I'm not going to cross-examine any witnesses. I'm not going to do an opening statement. He's just going to sit there. It's kind of unique. It's kind of a rope-a-dope. It's like a Muhammad Ali strategy. He's not going to defend himself because, and this is the part of the proceeding that I was asked to leave the courtroom, so I didn't get to hear. Apparently, it's his position, and not a. I could see from his perspective that this, the, whole, the whole case is illegitimate. I don't know if he thinks he's a prisoner of war. I don't know what it is, but he's apparently going to go passive. The judge is very concerned because it seems to be a good setup for an appeal. If you have an if you have a a, a defendant with no lawyer that's gone passive and is just going to sit there and take the pounding for for a week and then be convicted, so he might be crazy like a fox. He's not crazy at all. He's extremely articulate, and he had two complaints. And this is and then I'm sorry to give, but I wanted to be sure that you hear about Cholo because you may you're not going to hear about this guy anywhere else. I was the only journalist there. Ironically, a big high profile terrorism case. That's SDNY for you. Everyone everyone's chasing Puff Daddy, but this is Cholo. And Cholo, his complaint was, although he doesn't care about being convicted apparently, or at least it's a fait accompli. He wants to go passive. He lives on an entire floor of the MDC jail in Brooklyn, which is widely described as incredibly crowded, overcrowded, a human rights violation. We've learned this week from the Wall Street Journal, hat tip, that Sam Bakeman-Fried is, is dorming with the former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, in, in the same cell. But not only does Cholo not have a cellmate, he doesn't really even have a floor mate. He's on an entire floor of the jail with only two other people in it who he says he doesn't know who they are because he never sees them and can't speak to them. And why can't he speak to them, even screaming? Because they've turned up the white noise so loud that he can't hear himself think. And he can't even be heard by the doctors who knock on his door. This is like a Hannibal Lecter thing. He, he said this in open court. He said, judge, can you get them to turn down the white noise? Because I can't, it sounds like the sea, but also I can't sleep at night. And when the doctor knocks on the door and says, Cholo, Cholo, are you okay? All he hears is shh. Now is I'm this ready. This is this is this is, is a thing. A this thing? is true. Yes, wow. white noise is a thing. Okay. They turn it up in courtrooms so that the jury, if there's a discussion at sidebar, so that the jurors don't overhear. If they're discussing like 
Can I tell them that you were convicted of murder in the past? No, you can't tell them. They don't want the jury to hear that because then you're telling them. So they turn it up. It's it's a it's a loud shh noise that you can't hear behind. But on in this floor of the jail, otherwise teeming with people, people climbing over each other. On this one floor, there's nobody except Cholo. He's so dangerous that he can't. And I've learned who is, who is I believe, I'm ready to throw down. His floor mate is is none other than Adam uh, uh, Schulte, Joshua Adam Schulte, the CIA leaker to WikiLeaks of Vault wow. 7, the CIA's tools. He's considered so dangerous with a computer because he was pretty dangerous. He knew how to he not only like managed to get information out of the CIA to WikiLeaks, which is not as easy as you might think, but he also managed to like heal it and create like fake hard drives that no one could go in. He made a virtual machine. He's a genius. Um, and he's in jail there, and they're very afraid. He managed to somehow get it, get his get his air lapped air gapped computer tied back in. I don't know what happened, but he, he got stuff on there he was never supposed to have. So he's also up there with the white noise. There's a third guy, and I don't know who it is. I thought it might be one of them under There's some we may have never even have heard of this third candidate. Anyway, supposedly the prosecutors are going to ask them to turn the white noise down, but we won't learn until like January when Cholo is brought back in. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. It's it's a, I, what I mean is I'm sometimes dismissive of, you know, you have Sam Bankman Fried famously said he didn't have Adderall in jail and he couldn't get vegan meals other than peanut butter. He's now apparently trading cans of mackerel for hair for 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 uh, haircuts. That's the currency. You used to be able to trade cigarettes, but it's very hard. It's easier probably to get fentanyl than cigarettes right now in there. And you can get mackerel. It's legal trade. And he's trading mackerel. Anyway, I wanted to be sure that Cholo, the plight of, and I, I, I mean this legitimately, he may, it may be that he's guilty. He may have had bad intentions with commercial jet airliners on Americans, but I feel that like to, and, and it may seem crazy that he's going past it, but that's his right. But to have cranked up the white noise, I, I hope that, I hope that this, this, uh, this is a, the people gluing themselves down need to pay being a lot of attention to this because Cholo Abdi Abdullah is being held in a conditions that would drive anyone insane. Okay, I have to. I have to intervene. I have to intervene. Please do. Because, intervene. This, motion granted. Motion granted. This, thank you. Motion, <laughs> motion sustained. Um, Matthew, it just has all the telltale signs of an FBI sting, because when it's a, a plot to hijack commercial airlines, so at some point we're going to hear, and usually we hear about these things after after the verdict is rendered. Then all the interesting stuff comes out. You say that, well, he was on the radar. Or you'll hear it late in the trial. He was on the radar of the FBI, and yes, there was a confidential informant involved, and yet, sure, and we had. I, I know what you and, mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, but that, having... this totally sounds like at, at, right, straight out of Trevor Aronson's The Terror Factory. You know that book by Trevor Aronson, the, the sure, fantastic definitely. Book. The only yeah. thing is, I would say is he did have an opportunity, and he and again, I want to say I actually kind of I find him an interesting guy because he he was very. It's English is not his first language, but he didn't ask for a. He didn't ask for. He speaks Swahili and another language. I think Dharana. He doesn't he didn't ask for any kind of any kind of translator. And he's not at least he would have had every opportunity because they said inner city press is in the courtroom. Inner city press can leave. Inner city press come back in. Then he was given. the. I don't think he may have been set up, but I would say I feel like if he was just whistling down the road of Mogadishu without it, without a bad thought in his mind, if the whole thing was entrapment, I think we'd be hearing that or in that if it really was that it's unfortunate that he's going so passive because i agree it's very possible you can find somebody look there's a guy they put on trial here it it broke my heart actually I, although i ended up he wasn't that 
sympathetic a guy, a guy who was charged for 15 years ago, taking photographs for Hezbollah in New York. Um, and it was so he'd grown up in Lebanon. He'd had a terrible youth. He came here. They kind of threatened him. He also had a sort of a torch to burn against the situation in southern Lebanon. So they asked him, can you take a few photographs of the George Washington Bridge and, you know, maybe Grand Central? These are things you can get on a postcard. OK, he took the photographs. He sent them back. Well, be aware you can do 20 years for that. And that's pretty much what he's doing. And it's it that felt very much like just over. I mean, this guy, I don't know what you do. He's no longer a threat. I don't think Cholo, I don't know. If you released him, I don't know what he would do. I, I get. I, it's just the whole thing feels so, and what they're going to do if he's convicted, and I feel that he probably will be, he's going to be put where the guy, the Sipoff, the trial I told you about, the guy who, who actually did mow people down with a, with a pickup truck. I'm sorry that we're talking so much terrorism. I'm not, I think there are a lot of overblown things, but the Sipoff thing, it wasn't just a plan. It actually happened. The guy was from Uzbekistan. He was lonely, whatever it was. He rented a truck. He mowed down these Spanish tourists. And he's he's now in Supermax with with El Chapo, but with but not with. I don't think he'll ever see El Chapo. He he's allowed out of his cell in in, in Colorado one hour a day to play soccer with himself in a in a, in a steel cage. <laughs> I guess the ball bounced back, but they're so afraid of him. And he's a spindly little guy. He's not like. But because he mowed people down, people were very afraid of him in jail. He said things like, if you don't get me, the, if you don't get me my phone call, I'm going to behead you. And they were like in a frenzy. This came out at trial. I don't really see him as it. But he did. You know, it's one of these things like by himself as, as, as in a street fight. I don't see him winning behind that behind the wheel of a, of, a, of a Home Depot pickup truck. He can cause quite a bit of damage. But he's there for life. He's there for life. And his, his that legal case is being played out with whether he gets to keep his hundred dollars a month of commissary to buy whatever the equivalent of mackerel is out there or whether it has to be paid back to his victims who are. And there, it, it was it was it was a heartbreaking case. I mean, I think that they 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 spent a lot of money bringing the victims from Spain because they thought they were going to be they thought they were going to go for the death penalty on site. This guy's name is Saipal, Saifalo Saipal. But at the last second, Merrick Garland pulled the pulled the football out like Lucy and said, we're not going for it. So it was kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. It might have been therapeutic, um, but it didn't. It felt like he was so obviously going to be convicted. There was absolutely zero. There was footage of him renting the truck. There was footage of him running around on the West Side Highway after the the, the carnage. You know, I don't know what you can do. I, I, I'm in your hands for the rest. I'll, I'll answer. I could I tell mean, you about so, a narco case, but go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear about that narco case. But what is this? what is this about mackerel is this um you know back in the day i you you know traded uh uh favors or for cigarettes and uh <laughs> that's exactly i think and, it's and, now it's it was anchovies wasn't it before like canned anchovies <laughs> is, are you talking about canned mackerel are you talking about i'm talking about canned mackerel, mackerel. i'm talking canned about canned mackerel, mackerel. And what's, okay. a, what's a bit unclear is whether i think some people trade it without any intention of ever actually opening the can and eating it I think it's 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 like anything. This is we could we could talk about currency. If you it's want. hard currency. Yeah, it's a currency exactly. It has a it's a it's a stable. It doesn't it it doesn't disintegrate. It's it's, it's legal. It feels like the Bureau of Prisons is allowing the map because they know there's going to be trade, and it's probably better that it be this than K two synthetic marijuana or like sexual it's like a, it's like a or, case of vodka during the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like cases of vodka it, were actually it's hard a thing. currency. Yeah. Exactly. Because it doesn't, unlike some currencies on earth, it doesn't fluctuate. It is what it is. And so they say that Sam Bankman-Fried, now 
totally cut off from the world and awaiting sentencing is 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 turning he might be creating a futures market in mackerel because this is what he did with ftx the idea of like i'll give you mackerel to let's trade on the future <laughs> the future value of mackerel i do okay this is you're a global and so so let me tell you a couple of things have happened i don't know if you've ever heard of cz but many people have he was the head of Binance, which is, in fact, oh. was a larger, a larger crypto platform than FTX ever was. And Binance, very savvily, it didn't collapse because it wasn't really being subject to like financial fraud of the founder stealing money. But it was widely reputed to be willing to be used by North Korea, by Hamas. But, but Binance you know, they, triggered it, Binance triggered the FTX collapse, wasn't it? The rumor yes. by the head of Binance. Totally. He started totally. the a vicious whole thing player. Yeah. Well, you know what? But Sam Bankman-Fried was taught. This is like a jailhouse thing. Before Sam Bankman-Fried was in the jailhouse, Sam Bankman-Fried was talking trash in the prison yard. He, he was wanting around. He went to Dubai, even as his com company was collapsing. He went to Dubai and said, I'm bet the home of, 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 of CZ, by the way, and said, this guy will never get crypto legalized in the United States because he's Chinese. I'm an American. I'm lobbying legally. We're going to get the job done. Screw you, CZ. And they say from that moment on, CZ was like, you're going down, bro. And so when he had the opportunity to say your little FTT token is useless and I'm going to sell all of it, uh, th that's when everything collapsed. But it wasn't he. What it is, is he saw that there was actually no there there, that the emperor had no clothes, that if people began to sell it, it would collapse because there were eight billion dollars missing because Sam Bankman-Fried was just taking customers money to lobby, to pay Tom Brady, to like buy the Bahamas. Do you know what I mean? So so everyone said CZ won that one. In fact, there's some there's some famous memes of CZ kind of, you know, blowing the smoke out of his finger. But CZ, even CZ had to plead. CZ came to Seattle since we last spoke this week. He was in Seattle and he pled guilty to conspiracy to violate sanctions conspiracy to commit money laundering. He stepped down as the head of Binance and he's supposed to be sentenced probably to 18 months, maybe less in February. The big fight now is whether CZ can leave the United States prior to sentencing, in which case some people feel he'll never come back because why should he? He's he's on the hook for $175 million. He didn't put up the money. He signed that he would owe it. He put $15 million in, a, in, his, in his law firm, Davis right in Tremaine's bank account as escrow. He'll lose that money if he didn't come back. And two unidentified people have signed promises to themselves forfeit money. Just be assured, it hasn't been docketed yet. Yours truly has written to the judge in Washington, unseal those two people, just as we did in Sam Bankman-Fried because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Some people in crypto say Sam Bankman-Fried was a fraudster, CZ was a hero. I say, I want to know. I'm a journalist. I want to know who the shirters are. We'll see if we get them. But CZ hasn't left the U.S. yet because he can't until a district judge rules whether these terms of, of release are legitimate. And there's a final crypto guy, Do Kwan of South Korea, who is going to be extradited from Montenegro. Um, but they don't know if it'll be to the U.S. to face the music where there's a federal case or to his native South Korea, where most of his vict the victims of the Terra Luna, Luna collapse are. You didn't know you were going to get into crypto, but there you are. Well, there you have it. I, I'm going to add too, because of the CZ scandal with Binance, uh, they've hemorrhaged one billion, one billion dollars uh, this week. I mean, so it, it, the bottom's falling out. Is the bottom going to fall out of Binance? 
I don't know. think so. I think that I think that by cutting the deal, they, they I really think that they they were smart. They staunched the bleeding. They paid yes a three three point four billion dollar fine. The company paid a fine and is going to have a kind of treasury department overseer for the future. The founder of CZ agreed to have nothing more to do with them and to probably serve some time in jail. But he's going to be out while Sam Bankman-Fried is is not even finished with his appeals for, of his of his 20-year sentence. And Binance, I think a lot of people in crypto are happy with that resolution because at the bottom is not it it's not a fraud case. You know, it's a it's a sanctions violation case. And if if Credit Suisse can do it, why can't Binance? You know, you pay why a fine not? and why you move can't? on. Why can't we all do what Credit Suisse does? I mean, hey, that would be a great world, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Matthew, channel Matthew your Russell inner Credit Suisse, Lee. but not your Nygaard. <laughs> inner, oh no, don't even, don't even put that in the same sentence. Matthew Russell Lee, Inner City Press. Thank you very much for joining us this week on TNT. Okay, thanks, Thanksgiving version. Thanksgiving special holiday edition. Thanks, Matt Lee. Turkeys Thank everywhere. You, Thank you, Leila Hatoum, journalist in the first hour, and Patrick Henningsen signing out. Take care, you guys. All the best.